Our first movie tells the story of a friendship behind prison walls that spans more than 20 years. Welcome to episode 8 of Middle Brow Madness, an exercise in podcast hubris. My name is Derek Gaudet. Long, slender, masculine fingers tore up the bread pieces as they were thrown to feed the group of pigeons in front of the young man. At first glance, he looked like a gentleman taking a long break from filming a period piece or some commercial somewhere in the large, bustling, busy city of New York. What are you doing? (laughs) If you did a double take and actually studied him, he sat at this bench every day at the exact same time tearing apart the exact same bread for the exact same birds. He wore a black bowler hat, a black suit with dovetails, and had a bamboo walking cane. He was dressed after his hero, Charlie Chaplin. The only thing missing was the silly mustache he couldn't wear comfortably. This young, eccentric man's name was Edward Cullen. Hi, everyone. I'm Michelle Arf. What the fuck? Um, So that was because I Google searched fanfiction.net for Charlie Chaplin. And I happened to find that, and I figured you'd appreciate it, Derek. I'm... Uh, you can't just do that! <laughs> well, I did, so that's our new intro. Uh, I'm literally speechless. I don't understand what happened. We're not... Nothing... No! Michelle, we're not doing Twilight or Chaplin today. Yeah, but I I couldn't... Okay, because the only fan fiction I found for Steven Spielberg was way too raunchy to read on this fucking podcast. Wait, time out, time out. Did it in... Uh, you are coming in hot out of the gate, Michelle. Jesus Christ. Hold, give me one second to catch up. Do you want All me right. to look up the Spielberg fan fiction to read part of it to you? I mean, I mean, we're, we're here, aren't we? Okay. Uh, j- j- while Michelle is looking up Steven Spielberg fan fiction, uh, this is Mel Brown Man. It's a podcast where we ostensibly uh, talk about uh, some movies from the uh, large, gigantic uh, IMDb Top 250 bracket that we've set up. And uh, we've got two matchups today, but now i got to hear this fucking fanfic, I guess. Um, so this is from a story called Harrison Ford, The Biggest Slut. <laughs> Continue. When they opened the door and saw Harrison in a Speedo, they fully realized what they were here for. Hey, Harrison, you want to take off those clothes and let us show you something very, very pleasurable, Mr. Spielberg said calmly. If you are here, Mr. Spielberg, that must mean you are on about sex, Harrison blushed. Of course, so let's bloody hurry up with this. I I was drinking, George Lucas said angry. One by one, they all stripped... Wait, George Lucas is here too? <laughs> yes, he's there too. Oh my one God. by one, they all stripped off, all wanking over Pan, fingering his ass in whoa, urethra. Oh, time out, time out. Okay, let's I'm gonna put the kibosh on. What the fuck, Michelle? That's why I said I couldn't read that one. You made me read that. That was your fault. I didn't think we were going to be talking about fingering urethras on this show, and now I've repeated it. Now I've perpetuated it. Great. Let's talk about... Oh my God. <laughs> let's talk about Schindler's List. <sighs> we're not doing Schindler's List first. <laughs> Fine, let's talk about movies. Uh, we can't... Okay, this is what we do on this show. We got a yes. big old bracket. 250 movies in the top 250 from the Internet Movie Database, plus six ringers that we've chosen. Three from me, three from Michelle. We've already done one in the last episode, 
Or no, there's one in this episode. There's one yes. of them in this episode. So that's 256 moves. Single elimination bracket. We put them head to head until we get a champion. This podcast is going to go on until like 2022 or some shit. And um, we have vetoes sometimes because we're two people. Sometimes we disagree. And sometimes we disagree more. I have my four for real intact. Michelle has three. And if one of the six ringer movies is in a tie, it automatically loses because, you know, what's the point of doing an IMDb bracket if the IMDb movies don't go forward? And I guess we read fucking X-rated fan fiction? Okay, you made me read that. That was I read some PG-rated fan fiction about a nice man named Edward Cullen who happens to like Charlie Chaplin quite a bit. You (sighs) made it get dirty. That was your fault. (laughs) And also, just so everyone knows, now that I know I can completely derail the podcast, I'm going to be doing that more often. Michelle! So anyways... But now I'm going to want to derail the podcast, and I'm going to have to do some stupid shit. Well, I guess we'll escalate that until this podcast stops being about movies entirely. (laughs) Ah, man. All right, we got two matchups. We've got Raging Bull versus Howl's Moving Castle. We've got a Ghibli movie on this, and we've already got people's thumbs in their assholes. This is not the show I set out to make. And we've also got Schindler's List versus Winter Light, which is one of Michelle's ringers. I'm still speechless, Michelle. Do you I want mean, me to talk about Howl's Moving Castle first to start things off? Yeah, that movie's fucking wonderful. <laughs> yeah, I just watched it today. It's actually uh, it's a very good movie, I have to say. So Howl's Moving Castle, uh, for those who haven't seen it, is about a young oh, woman. Wait, named... wait, I should probably do a, I should probably do a tale of the tape first. Oh, I guess sure. Uh, Howl's Moving Castle. Since we've already brought it up, the 134 seed in this tournament released in 2004. Directed by Hayao Miyazaki, based on the novel of the same name, or the book of the same name, I'm not sure if it's a novel, by uh, Diana Wynne-Jones. Zero for one at the Oscars in 2006, losing out Best Animated Feature to Wallace and Gromit, Curse of the Were-Rabbit. Bullshit. I like Wallace and Gromit, but that's bullshit. Yeah, and uh, a bonafide worldwide smash, $24 million to make, and it earned $250. Raging Bull, uh, released in 1980, directed by Martin Scorsese, based on Raging Bull by Jake LaMotta, who is also known as The Raging Bull. Uh, Starring Robert De Niro, Joe Pesci, and Kathy Moriarty, two for eight at the Oscars, winning uh, Best Actor Robert De Niro and Best Editing uh, by Thelma Schoonmaker, and uh, modest hit, 18 mil to make. And 23 at the box office. Now, I don't know if that's a modest hit. I think that just barely made its money back. This was more of a critical dump. But let's go back to talking about House Moving Castle. Yeah, definitely. So it's about a uh, young woman uh, named Sophie mm-hmm. who happens to meet a wizard one day named Howell. And through some uh, mishaps, she ends up getting cursed to appear old to everyone who sees her. And she also can't talk about the curse. That's part of the curse. And while leaving the town, going out to the, the wastes is what they call it, correct? Uh, yes, I believe. Yes. Uh, she happens upon Howl's Moving Castle and becomes, uh, his cleaner, essentially, uh, through a very bad war. And some things happen, and the movie ends, and it's it's delight the entire time. Yeah, this isn't- And also, if you watch the English dub, Billy Crystal plays Calcifer, so that's fun. Yes. I did not watch the English dub, because I- It's good. uh, It's a good dub. I mean, just in general, um, Ghibli films have very good dubs, but- yeah, they well, they got the house of mouse behind them throwing some money around. So I, I just didn't want to do any reading today. So, <laughs> um, no, uh, this is a this was a rewatch for me. This is a fantastic looking, as all of Miyazaki's films are. Uh, but this one feels like especially phantasmagorical in that the plot's kind of loosey goosey and kind of lives and dies by its images. Like there's like obvious thematic stuff about war and imperialism and compassion, but. I think this is, like, one of the more purely image-driven movies that Miyazaki has made. 
Yeah, I think that's a fair thing to say, because to be honest, I don't remember most of the plot. And I've seen this movie a few times, and it's one of my favorite Ghibli movies, and I still am kind of like, eh, I don't really remember what happens exactly, especially towards the end. Um, yeah, the, the, the rules and conditions of the curse kind of waver a bit towards the end. Um, I, th- I think... Well, they, they the- waver throughout because there's an early part where she's sleeping and Hal happens to see her and she looks young again. She looks young again. And that's never explained. It never seems to like go anywhere. Uh, she, depending on the moment, it's actually one of her parts of the film is how she will look older or younger depending on the moment she's in, except that doesn't really make any sense. Yeah. I mean, when, like when she first gets cursed. I think it's a beautiful effect, but at the same time. Yeah. She's like, she's like kind of stouter and she has like wider features. But, like, later on in the film, she has kind of, like, her, like, slender, more young Sophie-esque figures, but with, like, the hair and, like, like and, like, sort of the wider body. The head will be more narrow. It kind of depends. She does her, this is a kind of best exemplify, like, towards the end where she does her spiel to, like, to, like the monarch, I yes, guess. Yes, yes, yes. And she does the spiel about how, like, how's fucking rad and all that noise. And she gets younger while the speech is going on. And then she, like, snaps back to old. Yeah, and I think it's it's one of those things that works emotionally for me, even if it doesn't work logically, which is a lot of this film. A lot of this film doesn't really make sense, but uh, the way that it's presented makes it make emotional sense. And I think there's a ton of parallels between this film and uh, Spirited Away, which we talked about in a previous mm-hmm. episode. Which is pretty phantasmagorical in its own right as well. As well. But it feels more structured. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're both essentially about a young woman who happens to come into a, uh, a fantastical milieu. Of a certain kind. Mm-hmm. Um, both of them feature a very heavy theme of like a family that's created instead of the family that you're given. Um, both of them have a character who is a villain or is attached to the villain that becomes just part of the crew at one point. Sure. Um, both of them have uh, a flying magic man. Yeah, they do. Yeah. Uh, I don't know where I'm going with this. Is this <laughs> Save me. Bail me out. I just well, re- listing off things that are similar. Well, the thing is... Miyazaki has not just like sort of an incredible animator's eye, but there's a thematic through line, all of his work. Like they feel like even if this, and this is a testament to his skills as a visual storyteller or as an emotional, is that even like you were saying, even though the plots don't, or the, the, the machinations of the plot don't necessarily make, it makes perfect sense if you take in the feeling of it. And this is not just this, this goes across the board. There's like exceptions maybe. Stuff like Castle Cogliostro is like it's it's a heist movie basically and like some of his other films are more sort of like we ju- like I just said Spirited Away is a lot more coherent, but this I think this and I think this is probably the one movie I would show to someone and say this is what emotional storytelling in animation is would you say that over spirited away i think spirited away by dint of the fact that it has a stronger narrative plot framework to it i mean it's just as phantasmagorical and it's just uh, just as emotive but i think on a pure visual and emotion level howl howl is the one i'd point okay i think that's it's fair i'm not i wasn't prepared to have this discussion so i don't have anything prepared for it um i do think that the film is best when it's letting those images just go oh 100 percent um, and it's letting those images really drive the movie. Uh, and um, one of my favorite things about it is actually from the dub. I actually really like Christian Bale's performance, but you can see it in the animation as well in that. Does he play Howl? Yeah, he plays Howl. Okay. And that Howl 
is either incredibly dramatic or he's incredibly happy and doesn't seem bothered by anything. Yeah, he's like a he's like an uwu anime boy, right? Oh, uh, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> an uwu anime boy. Yes, Derek. <laughs> he is, he is, I can't believe that was just said on this podcast. Of all the things in this episode that's been ridiculous so far, you that's probably the most You started this podcast ridiculous. cold with fanfic, and I'm getting shit for speaking in the vernacular of the time. I was just warming us up. So, um... <laughs> And I also oh, I like the character a classic episode. I like the character of Sophie quite a bit. Uh, Very I think, good character. I think that she's she develops more of a uh, a personality. I think than uh, oh, Chiro. Yeah, thank you. Than Chiro, it does in Spirited Away because I also think this movie's trying to say a lot different things. Whereas Spirited Away isn't really about love. Like she, obviously she cares about um, why can't I remember anyone's fucking name? Oh my god, I'm dying. Um, uh, in uh, in Spirited Away, yes. Uh, the the the, the boy, the, the boy, dude. Is it Ren Shen um, Haku? Haku. Uh, they definitely love each other, but it's not like a romantic sense of love. Whereas in Howl's Moving Castle, it does seem like a romantic sense of love, and I think that right. those because of that, it doesn't. I don't want to say it's at all a bad film. I still give it four and a half stars. I think still think it's one of my favorite of Miyazaki movies. I think mm-hmm. it's harmed slightly by the fact that in quick succession, I've watched Spirited Away. I watched uh-huh. Princess Mononoke, and I sure. watched this, and I think this is the weakest of the three by a decent margin. Uh, because it, it doesn't uh. have – the thing that I loved about Spirited Away specifically, I won't talk about Princess Mononoke too much, even though it's – Derek, the movie fucking rules. It does fucking rule. and I mean, it's got to be somewhere around this bracket. It right? is. Yeah, we'll get to it. Um, so I'll have a chance to like say why it fucking rules later. Oh, this is this is late, late, late. This is the third to last map, the first yes. round, and it's up against Hotel Rwanda. And I'm I won't spoil anything. I'm not going to say anything else. So I think that the reason this movie is a little weaker than Spirited Away is because Spirited Away has an uncertainty and a a sense of a lack of resolve or resolution rather that this film it's a little too easy at points. Like the end okay. of this film is everyone gets what they want and everything's fine. Whereas the end of Spirited Away is, hey, I'm leaving all these friends I made to it's go. It's a more complex ending. Yeah, it's a much more emotionally complex feeling. And I think that Howl's Moving Castle, for all it's trying to do, I'm not sure that the anti-war themes really cohere exactly. I mean, in, in the ne- or, or in, in the, the, in the sense that, that they don't is bad. Yes, but like that's sure that's like an easy thing to like depict. Mm-hmm. But and I think that there's moments like when Howl says. Uh, I think like it's Sophia's like, well, wouldn't you want to fight on the side of like our king? And Hal's like, what does it matter? Like they're both they're both bad. Instead of being like both sidesism or anything like that, it's a lot more a sense of this act of war is in and of itself bad. It doesn't matter that your side is winning. It doesn't matter that the people who you ostensibly are cheering for are doing well. It matters that like people are dying and yeah, the, the world's on fire literally for parts of this movie. Yeah. And there's a giant, like, uh, battleship that comes in all fucked up in a harbor. Good image. It is a good image. Um, but at the same time, because it doesn't have that strong emotional through line to me, uh, like, I think the love story works. I think that everything in it works, but it doesn't have that same kind of, oh, this really grabbed me and it made me feel these really complex feelings of both nostalgia and difficulty and joy and sadness and, like, the bittersweetness. I'm... Finding myself at a slight loss of what exactly to say about it, to be honest. Well, I think that emotional through line, at least for me, because for myself, um, is it becomes stronger if you fold in like the first batch of secondary characters. If you consider like 
the network of like the five main characters. I think that's where it flies highest and not necessarily romantic subplot alone. Sure, sure. Um, but I mean, it's 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 great. I think this is like 2004 was like a banner year for like like long form animation from Japan, and um, this is definitely a highlight. I think it, but I think it is kind of a grower because I think I might have underrated it the first time I saw it, and I bumped it up when I watched it. Yeah. I think uh, I feel bad that I don't have more to say about this movie. It's very good, but at the same time, I, I'm thinking I'm thinking a lot about Raging Bull and how it's not a very good movie. <laughs> See, we're gonna have a disagreement. I think we will. Yes, uh, I think Raging <laughs> Raging Bull is a film by Martin Scorsese. Let's just transition right into it. Uh, yep. That stars Robert De Niro in perhaps his most acclaimed performance, at least after the fact. It's the film everyone I mean, points to. He he got the Oscar for it. So. He did. Um, and it is widely considered one of Scorsese's best films. I think that both those things are deeply silly. I think it's uh, the worst Scorsese film I've ever seen. I would take The Departed over this, and I don't think The Departed's a great film. Um, I don't... Uh, I'll say this. I get what people see in this movie, but I don't see it. I mean, so I'm, so I'm going to say all these things that I liked about Raging Bull, and you're, you're going to say, I get it, but... But they didn't do anything for me. They didn't do anything for you. Like, I, I, I get that it's trying to not... It's not a heroic picture, obviously. It's a it's a picture about an asshole. It's a picture about an asshole. And he's a very good asshole. He plays an asshole very well. But at Great the same ass. time, like, man, I just didn't give a shit about anything that happened in this fucking movie. It was so boring, Derek. It was. I hate to fall on that because it's like such a lazy thing to say, oh, this movie is boring. It doesn't actually say anything, really. It just is like, hey, I didn't like this movie. But I <laughs> could not wait for this movie to end. I am a heterosexual. True. Now, as such... I've been culturally groomed to buy into the romance of of, of boxing, and and also, I mean, not like sort of helped by the fact that I watch a lot of wrestling's like weird cousin boxing's weird cousin professional wrestling. Um, the sort of uh, romance and uh, drama of combats and the interpersonal drama there. Um, the rise in this movie is not nearly as affecting as the fall. The back half of this movie is a lot better. I feel. Um, yeah, I would I would agree with that as well. Um, I think like on a just technical level, uh, I think, I don't know if this is the best cinematic depiction of boxing on just like on, like on a raw technical level. No, no. But it's better than Million Dollar Baby, which we covered previously. Yeah, that's not, that's not a high bar. It's not a high bar, but it's the bar we have to work with. Okay. Know? Here's a better, I mean, you didn't see this movie, so it's not a very bad bar, but a better bar for me is the fact that I saw a movie earlier this year called Wilderness, which is about boxing as well. Didn't like it for most of it. Um, but there's a final sequence and the boxing in that is so much better depicted and so much more real and violent and almost frightening, but majestic at the same time than anything in this movie. This movie felt very bloodless to me, oddly. Because it's, which is weird for a movie that was kind of condemned for its violence because it was not like a huge hit. Yes. Yes. Um, but, uh, I thought that the... We, when we talked about uh, Martin Scorsese previously with uh, Wolf of Wall Street, I uh, I said that I liked sort of the energetic filmmaking, and I thought that energy was definitely there, at least in the boxing, because this movie is basically half in the ring and half sort of uh, a domestic drama. Um, uh, but yeah, I, I love the, if not necessarily the depiction of boxing, I love the energy. Um, I thought the I thought the movie looked really, really good. I thought... Um, I liked, I mean, I, I did like uh, Robert De Niro's performance. I, I would agree that it's not his best, but I did like it. I liked all the supporting cast. I liked Joe Pesci doing his Joe Pesci thing. Yeah, Joe Pesci was good. I, I liked him quite a bit in it. Um, 
I also uh, I also liked uh, uh, I also liked Kathy Mori uh, uh, Kathy Moriarty in probably not the most overwritten part, but she did she did pretty good with it. Um, the back half of the movie where Robert De Niro pawns his championship belt doesn't even pawn it. He he fails at pawning his belt to pay yes. for bail and uh, and basically just becomes a. Uh, a ledger in a book in a library that no one checks out because he was champion for 18 and has a shitty nightclub app is affecting that back half of the film. I think we're, I don't know. I really fucking liked it. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I, like I said, I see what it's doing for the people. And I think the last thing I want to say about this movie is I'm actually going to quote from a letterbox review of my friend, Owen. I think he put it. Oh yeah. Owen. He put, um, what is worthwhile about this film way better than I, I ever could, especially since I didn't see much that was worthwhile. And uh, I will say it didn't work for me, but apparently it works for other people. And uh, the review I'm about to quote will say why. I apologize for this. It's going to be a slightly long quotation. But um, when I watched Raging Bull in my 20s, I didn't see much worth saving in Jake. I just saw an interesting character study in paranoia, sexual dysfunction, and other elements that make up what we may today call toxic masculinity. Not to mention the masterful editing, cinematography, and general mizzen scene. But Jake himself, Jake the character, where he ended up, I viewed him ending up a pathetic sub-lounge lizard dating floozies as justifiable punishment for having been a terrible person. I didn't really see much having changed within him except him losing everything he held dear. How did this character save Scorsese? How did this story give Scorsese hope? Well, I'll let Scorsese tell you. And this is a quote from uh, Martin Scorsese. I don't know. The film really doesn't help me to see these things more clearly, nor does it help me to understand others or myself. What really interests me is hope. In the pit of his dungeon, Jake doesn't have anything. He's lost it all. Vicky, his brother, his house, his children, his championship belt. Before, we saw him undergo a terrible punishment from Dothel... Dothel... One of the... You know what I'm saying. I think it's Dutel. Thank you. Um, He let himself be massacred then. In the last seconds, he had a surge of pride and demolished his opponent. In other words, he's never really gotten what he deserves. He hasn't paid. After which, he meets Robinson. What does he see there? He sees his blood squeezed out of the sponge, his body that they're preparing for the sacrifice. For him, it's a religious ritual, and he happens to use Robinson to punish himself. As I told you, everything happens in his head. He thinks he's at the end of his martyrdom, but there again, his pride carries him away. When they stop the fight in the 13th round he yells i didn't hit the floor i didn't hit the floor and rebels one more time then the posing for the photographs at the swimming pool in miami and you can see everything he has to lose vicky the kids the cadillac the nightclub he loses all that immediately and now in his cell all that's left is himself he's facing the wall facing himself and he screams i'm not that guy he has fallen so low that he can only come up to be reborn will be find him in the strip tease joint he has changed a customer threatens him like a clown and he answers without any aggression that's why i'm here He has found a kind of peace with himself. He's no longer the same man. Of course, it's not ideal, but he could have fallen even lower. His job isn't degrading. He has stopped destroying himself like so many of his friends. He has survived. And that's my elegy for this film because I don't think it's going to move on. (laughs) Uh, uh, Shout out to Owen. Yes. And shout out to Martin Scorsese. Um, Yeah. What am I going to do? Disagree with with Marty? (laughs) I will. Hey, Marty, your movie wasn't very good. I like you. You're a good director. But uh, make a couple more uh, Bringing Out the Deads and a couple fewer Raging Bulls. I still haven't seen Dread, which seems it's off-brand. fucking great. It's so good. Nicolas Cage, right? It is. It's one of Cage's best roles, which is saying quite a bit. Um. So we're left with a choice, and it's yeah, yeah, Raging yeah. Bull versus Howl's Moving Castle. I think it's yeah, pretty think- clear where I'm leaning, but I want to hear about you. Again, this is like, uh, <laughs> oh man, because I think that both these movies are exemplary, and I get that th- that's the whole the whole gimmick of this podcast. Yes, it is. And 
not to like cast aspersions or do uh or uh or like assume but i get the feeling that over the course of this show you're going to dissent i'm almost certainly which kind of puts me the person who will dissent less in more precarious positions so i get to wield a lot i get to wield the hammer a lot yeah i'm giving you all the power i'm just here saying that raging bull isn't a very good movie and oh man! I'll I think they sure I get plenty of fucking great. I get plenty of pushback in that at some point. If anyone listens to this podcast, mm. I don't want to. I don't want to metagame it either. Ah, uh, God! This is probably the toughest one for me that I've done so far. That's I'm I'm very surprised at that. Mm. Like harder than Modern Times versus the Maltese Falcon. Oh, that was that was hard too. Oh man! God, Miyazaki Miyazaki has other move brackets. He right? does. Yeah, he, has, he got spirit. One of his already got, moved moved ahead. One of us already moved ahead, and he's got more lined up. Like Totoro's in lovely, right? I no, I think it's actually is it Grave of the Fireflies or something else that's on there besides Princess Mononoke? No, Totoro is there at one thirty-two. Copy. Uh, Princess Mononoke is there, and Grave of the Fireflies is there, but that is is how Takahata jumped. So Ghibli's got so Ghibli's got plenty of horses in this field. I'm going to say Raging Bull and use a veto. Shit. Okay. (laughs) Well, folks, it looks like Raging Bull is moving ahead. I fucking love Howl's Moving Castle, but I think that the other Ghibli movies that we're going to be talking about, I like more than, than this one, even though this one's pretty masterful. I mean, I don't disagree with you. I think that this is one of the weaker films that of of the Ghibli films that are on this list, but... Grave of the Fireflies is against Rush. The band. The entire discography <laughs> yes. of the band Rush. Uh, so if you're a libertarian, tune into that episode. <laughs> oh, man. There, there's two kinds of Rush fans. You're either a libertarian or you just you like drum solos. I will, You're the second I will, camp, I know. I will replace. I will do your. I will uh, swap your joke into a different joke. There's two kinds of Rush fans: libertarians and uh, you know, like Canadian Heshers. I was gonna say and, and Canadians. Gonna say, well, specifically because I was listening on a podcast. Uh, someone mentioned this on a podcast I listened to, and I forget which one. Is that Rush in Canada is 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 like is like Hesher music? It's like for the. It's for like you know like knuckle dragging small town people. It's not like they have philosophically intelligent, you know, smart drum solo music. It's 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 music for Hicks. So Hicks deserve better music. I mean, Hicks do deserve better. Music. <laughs> okay. like, so do we all. But you know, I'm on record as being a Rush fan. True, true. Straight up. Um, Am I also a libertarian? Tune in to find out when we cover <laughs> some other fucking movie. When we cover the Fountainhead. Incredi- Incredibles two. Atlas Shrugged Part three is on this list somewhere. No, it's not. It's- um, so yeah, I guess I got three vetoes now. Okay, well, we both used our vetoes in very dumb ways. I'm excited about that. I don't know if I would call that dumb. <laughs> oh, you, I think okay, that but you know you're sa- failing next round, though, right? Oh. Uh, it's going against either Schindler's List or Winter's Light. Raging Bull I, loses. If not, my veto is going towards it losing. Don't be so sure, Michelle. I'm so confident I would bet all the money I've ever made on it. I don't even know how this one's going to shake out. So okay. let me read the ta- let, let me read yes, the tale. Yes. Um, Schindler's so Schindler's list, the sixth seed. That's one, two, three, four, five, six. The movie that has been judged the sixth best film of all time by the users of the Internet Movie Database. Uh, released in nineteen ninety three, directed by Steven Spielberg, based on the novel Schindler's Ark by Thomas Kenialli. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Uh, starring Liam Neeson, Ben Kingsley. Ray Fiennes, and Caroline Goodall. 7 for 12 at the Academy Awards. Clean the fuck up. And a pretty sizable hit. $322 million made on a $22 million budget. Against Michelle's first ringer. The 251 seed, 
Winterlight, directed by Ingmar Bergman, released in 1963, starring Gunnar Bjornstrand, Ingrid Thulin, Gunnar Lindblom, and Max von Sydow. Yeah. And, I mean, I don't I don't have really any ancillary stats on that other than it's been very well received. Yes, um, but uh, I think the reason that it didn't make the actual IMDb 250 is there weren't enough votes on it. It was... There weren't enough votes on it. Yeah, it's relatively underseen, in my opinion. But let's talk a little bit about Schindler's List. This is... This is a. This was the first time I saw this movie, which is again very surprising. I would have thought that it's just a movie you kind of have to see at some point. Like I probably watched it in school, part of it. I probably like saw it on TV, all that kind of stuff. And um, turns out it's pretty good. <laughs> I mean, I liked it. And it, um, it is pretty good. We'll get to the uh, issues I have with it in a moment, but I think we should say first what we liked about it. Um, this movie looks great. It's very well shot. Uh, like it's 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 it manages. This- it, it walks this fine line of being very slick, but also really gnarly. Like I was talking in the chat earlier with our good friend, Ross Burks, and he made the point that the, the pistol shots to the head are upsetting. Yeah. And they're so unceremonious as well. They're just boom. Like it's, there is no like rack focuses. There's no close ups. It's all just so matter of fact that it makes it more uncomfortable and more harrowing to watch. Yeah. And there's a few parts of this film that are harrowing. Um, you know, beyond just the, oh, the Holocaust is bad. It's like, like this movie gets like, it, it got, it gets some shit for, um, for using, um, the, the gas chambers as like a suspense device, which rightfully that seems bad. Yeah, that's rough. And also, I don't know what it's trying to, for people who haven't seen the movie, there's a scene where some women are being led into what they think is a gas chamber, like, and they're going to die. But it actually ends up being just a regular shower. Just a regular-ass shower. What is that movie... What I mean, sorry, what is that scene saying in the context of the movie? Like, I... Not only did I dislike it, it felt very tacky and very... It's a weird scene. <laughs> uh, it didn't feel like it added anything. Like, I was like, why is this in the movie? I mean, I think I think it's... I think it's a fit... Like, uh, like a, a fit of poor taste. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I but, think there's also some other fits of poor taste later on, and I think the ending especially is abysmal. The is so fucking weird. Um, what the? But fuck before is we that before I bury this, let's be- keep before we bury this movie. Let's let's keep- quickly say that um the uh, the acting is throughout. The acting is quite good. Excellent. Liam Neeson and Ralph Fiennes obviously are kind of the people the ones people remember. Although I think Ben Kingsley is actually the ben secret. Kingsley's excellent. He's the secret MVP of this movie, and also the only Jewish person that's in the main cast, which is. Uh, or rather, playing a Jewish person, I should say. Uh, uh, yep, the other two are Nazis. Yes. This movie's really weird. It is. This movie is, is, like, told through the eyes of a capitalist Nazi. Yeah. And it's it's got all these kind of weird... I mean, I hesitate to call them grace notes in the context of this film, but there's some really weird choices. And again, it's this mix of the slick and just utterly confounding. <laughs> I feel like we we keep edging into just saying all the things we didn't like about it. One more thing I will praise is I think that the sequence of the liquidation of the ghetto is incredibly awesome. affecting. Um, the best sequence in the movie, I'd say, and it's I would agree. It's the thing that dissuaded me from my original thought on this movie. Is I remember seeing this when I was like a high school or whatever, and in my memory, mm-hmm. it was Hollywood's version of the Holocaust. It wasn't. Um, it wasn't serious, basically. It was very yeah. like sanitized. Whereas that sequence is not sanitized at all. It is it is rough. It is harrowing, and it is what this kind of film should be. Yeah, that was my assumption too. Going into this, is that this movie is going to be really slick. It was going to be kind of a 
a, a, a spit shine take on the tale, but no one gets grungy. It's not just the headshots. There's a lot of handheld work. Uh, the, the contrasting is very stark. I missed the girl with the red coat completely because I'm colorblind and the colors don't work that way for my eyes. So that image was lost on me, but that's not the movie. But you know what was the movie's fault? A lot of stuff. I feel weird saying all these bad things because it's a. I still give it four stars. I still think it's, it's a, a very, very movie. good movie. It's really good. It's 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 a pretty good movie. I mean, it's got it's got the six seed. I mean, I don't know if I would make it the sixth best film of all no. time, but it's a good ass movie. It's. I wouldn't even say it's the sixth best Holocaust film of all time, but name name five Holocaust movies better than Schindler's List. Shoah. One. Uh, Night and Fog. Two. Uh, the Night Porter. Three. Um, Son of Saul. Four. And um oh uh the shop on is it the shop on Main Street or the shop around the corner? No, it's not the shop around the corner. You dickhead! <laughs> I believe it's called the shop on Main Street. It's a, it's a Romanian film. Maybe no, maybe it's a Czech film. Fuck. The shop on Main Street is a Czechoslovak film from 1965. That's it. Yeah. Congratulations, Michelle. You win. Hooray! Also, I mean, te- <laughs> um, it's not so much about the Holocaust, but about World War Two in the. War crimes committed during their obviously come and see. I mean that's fair. Yeah. Um. But so you want to, you want to talk about the ending? <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about that ending. Uh. Like I think I, there's there's two there's two there's, problems with it. There's two problems. <laughs> the first one. Do you want do you want to uh, take the big one because you're smarter than me and can like actually intone this? Okay. So um the ending of this film is uh we see that uh what do you call it. The uh, all the people that Schindler saved are waiting for the Red Army to come and basically re- uh, get them, more or less, mm-hmm. um, because the war is officially over. Um, and as they, uh, what do you call it? <clears throat> um, as they like ask him, like, "Hey, like, where are we supposed to go?" He was like, "Well, don't go to the west because they still don't like Jewish people. Don't go to the east because they still don't like Jewish people. I think there's like a town over there that might have food." And then it cuts to a um. What do you call it? A a bunch of people walking across a field. Wide shot of just a line of people walking. While the song Jerusalem of Gold plays on the soundtrack, which for those who don't know, it's uh, considered like an informal victory anthem of uh, Israel- the Israeli uh, victory during the Six-Day War. Are you see? Because I did not know that. Yeah. That was lost on me. Yeah. Uh, and the implication is, of course, hey, go to Israel. It's a very explicitly... Zionist, and I mean that in a philosophical and like historical sense, not the anti-Semitic sense. I should, I hope, should be clear. Sure. But fucking white supremacists ruin everything, uh, <laughs> don't they? They really do. <laughs> um, but it's an explicitly Zionist message um, at the end of a film where that seems not only a bit strange, it also seems strange in the context of Steven Spielberg's filmography because um, Munich is a film that has a lot more complicated feelings about. Uh, the conflict between Palestine and Israel it has a lot more complicated things to say. Whereas this film essentially ends with, Hey, the Holocaust is over. Let's go to Israel. Nothing bad happened there. Right. And it's just a very, it's, I don't understand that choice except as a political choice. And as a political choice, I vehemently disagree with it. Like as an aesthetic choice, I can't justify it. Yeah. I mean, like my, my, like my admittedly less politically minded uh, take on it was just, it just grinds the film to a halt and makes it land with a fart. Yeah, it is a bad choice. Yeah, and um, because what they do is they also get the actors, like they get the actual ass survivors and the actors portraying them going to Oscar Schindler's grave. Yeah, God, and it takes like a whole fucking five minutes. Everyone gets like a little solo, and, and like 
And it's like, well, that's a way to end a movie. I don't know if I would have been... I don't know if it is the way to end that movie. I think it's a very weak way to end that movie, and it's it's it, sentimental where the rest of the film isn't. Yeah, I mean, like, I don't know how that movie doesn't just end after they start walking. And um, I want to say it's not just us that have said this in the past. Obviously, this is a very acclaimed film, but uh, I did... Uh, you can actually find the Wikipedia page, Reactions from the Jewish Community, um, which we should both say we're Gentiles. This is... Sure. We're basically talking out of our asses. Um, but... Uh, there is a Hungarian Jewish author named Imre uh, Kertstitz, I think would how you pronounce that. I might be totally fucking that up. I apologize. Um, who was a Holocaust survivor himself, who said he felt it's impossible for life in a concentration camp to actually be portrayed properly by someone who didn't experience it firsthand. And that he said, while well, he was happy the story went to a wide audience, um, the final scene at the graveyard, he thought neglected the terrible after effects of the experience of the survivors and just implied that they were fine. Right. And I think that's a very... That, that, that- that they survived means they were fine. Yes. Um, and getting into that same, into a similar sense of that is the fact that it's really weird and it's a choice that I personally don't really like that our two main characters are essentially Ralph Fiennes and Liam Neeson, who are both Nazis. And we don't really ever see this film through a Jewish character's eyes. It's 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 like almost like a I don't want to quite say white savior, but it's very it is a bit. And there's a fact that the end of the movie that the ending that people love so much is that essentially Oscar Schind- Schindler Schindler has a breakdown is- um, and says like oh I could have saved more people, and then the whole like the whole community comes and comes around and all the people he saved comes around and, like hug him, and it's like this is a weird way to end a movie about the Holocaust by looking at how bad a Nazi feels. Yeah, because because uh, Liam Neeson is. The, the the proverbial good Nazi. Yes. And like, uh, we should say uh, Schindler was a real guy and we should Actual we guy. should not discount all the good he did, certainly. Nope. But at the same time, the way it's framed is very problematic to me because it ignores, obviously Spielberg is Jewish, so it's not ignoring Jewish voices in that sense, but it is ignoring placing them at the forefront and showing their story. It's Oscar Schindler's story. And uh, to me, that feels like a disservice. This is a really good movie that's fucked up in key ways. <laughs> yeah. And there's another thing I want to uh, read. Uh, so obviously the thing hanging over this movie is Shoah, which for those who don't know sure. is an eight hour or I guess I think nine hour documentary about the Holocaust that actually interviews survivors and perpetrators. And it is one of the best films ever made. I don't think I'm alone in saying that. And no, it is uh, widely acclaimed. I have only seen clips and it is something. Yeah. Um, and the director of that, this is a very self-important thing for him to say about himself, but he's also not wrong. So I'm just going to quote him. He says, um, I sin- this is Claude Lanzmann, by the way. I, I sincerely thought that there was a time before Shoah and a time after Shoah and that after Shoah, certain things could no longer be done, but Spielberg did them anyways. <laughs> and like, yeah, like it's kind of, you're saying that about your own movie, but at the same time, yeah, like you're right. It, it, oh, it's man. just like having that knowledge or even like looking at something like night and fog that just better addresses the same this same thing i feel like schindler's list there's a it's grasping for something but the way it does it is very hollywood hollywood in that you have the good guy fighting against the bad guys you have heroes you have villains and the fact that um the main villain in this movie played by ray, ray fines um as Imon goth he's just like a sociopathic killer Sure. Instead of just like that's it diminishes what the Holocaust actually was by making it seem like, oh, it was perpetrated by literally evil people who literally kill people for fun. It wasn't a political thing. It wasn't uh, the result of an ideology. It was the result of um, 
Psychosis. I've seen all of maybe half an hour of Shola, but in that half hour, I saw a much more thorough and compassionate uh, take on trauma. Yes. That I think was absent in Schindler's List. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, th- I think the, although you you discussed that there is a lot of red tape in this movie, and that's kind of the point of some of it. This movie It's very is, bureaucratic. It's very bureaucratic. Like, I wanted to make, like, I felt like it was maybe in poor taste to put this as my letterbox review. But this was basically a movie about a gallows built with... Yeah, no. And I think, again, having a Mongoth be literally just a killer a instead of, like, a bureaucrat makes it... It's, it makes it too easy for the audience to not see themselves in it. It makes it too easy for them to say, oh, that's what evil people do, is they commit these acts. Instead of saying, hey, there was a system that was developed, and this system was evil, yes, but the system has also allowed people to pretend they weren't doing evil. It allowed people to ignore the fact that they were doing things wrong, that they were a great murdering reading. people, essentially. Oh, Sorry. There's also a great sort of... Uh like capitalist reading of this film in terms of like we're having labor. having money saves people but we're already probably close to getting to time on i think this. we're already past time so shit but uh so michelle yes i want you to sell me on how winter light is one of the best films of- okay um uh do you mind if i start with the poetry reading are you gonna read some more fanfic no i'm gonna read actual poetry Actual poetry, okay. So, um, this Not is... to diminish the creations of the <laughs> fanfiction community. But... So uh, these are some excerpts uh, from a poem called Warehouse of Prayers by uh, Laura Kasich, I think is how you would pronounce her last name. It's K-A-S-I-S-C-H-K-E. It's one of those fun names. Kasich, yeah, that's what I think too. So, and oh, I saw it then. So many prayers. Who could answer them all? And yet what God would have the heart to toss them out? Yes, he says, I know. It terrifies. The silence and the din. The tremendous weight of them defies anything you might think or say about sound, about size. But yes, of course, of course I've kept them all. And the green lawn rolls, and the green lawn rolls, to the foot of it all, to the foot of it all, telling the story of a world created by a god who wanted to be loved but did not like to talk. Always that flash of desire, always in that way, that gray cat sleeping in the driveway, those teenage girls bathing in a pond of bees. That's what's left of the freedom God had to make us or remain free. And suddenly, God answers me. I am made of the same thing you are, after all, and you are made of me. Some darkness, a supplication, a moral silence breezing over the glassy stubble in a vacant field. Like trying to hold fire. Like trying to hold perfume. Like wearing fog to work. Like stoppering a bottle full of light. Trying to talk to God. Oh wait, look, after all. That warehouse, that abyss, and a beautiful naked stranger diligently trying to ladle the oceans into it. And I took those excerpts from also my review of Angel's Egg, which is another film that is about faith and about God and about our relationship with God and how difficult it can be when God is essentially silent. And whether Good poem, though. <laughs> yes, great poem. If you, I would highly recommend reading more uh, Laura Kasich for everybody that's listening. I think she's amazing. Um, and I think that Winter Light, better than almost any other film potentially that I've ever seen expresses the difficulty of faith and expresses why it is so hard to believe and also why you maybe don't want to believe why why god might not exist at all why one would lose faith and it does so while still having what i i think i told you is one of the happiest endings in film please elaborate so not that i don't <laughs> believe you because i came like this is like maybe since i suck at cinephilia this is like the fourth igmar bergman and 
Michelle is a, an avowed mega fan of this, so I don't think it's weird to just let her talk okay. and let, let let her make the movie's case. Um, so for those who haven't seen the film, it's about a uh, a a priest who has lost faith and uh, who he has come to believe that God stopped talking to him if he ever did talk to him, and it's it just tracks him throughout a day. At first, he um, gives a service, and then. After the service, uh, a man played by Max von Sydow basically was like, hey, I need to talk to you. And um, during their talk, uh, the man talks about, hey, like the world, like he basically talks, he hears about how the Chinese are training their children to be killers and they're going to drop an atomic bomb on him, on, on us. And that really shook him and it made him feel like life is meaningless and pointless. And uh, spoiler, it's not even a spoiler. He kills himself on the way home because the priest isn't able to help him when he goes to him for help. He, all this priest is able to talk about is himself and how he lost faith. And the fact that when he was younger, he felt like he had a relationship with God, but the more he grew up, the more he realized it was just an echo of himself that he was seeing. It wasn't actually God. And now he's, uh, his wife died recently, or I guess a couple of years ago at this point in the film. And since then he has lost his ability to believe at the same time, he has a mistress, um, who is played by, oh my, uh, can you, do you have that? Ingrid Thulin. Thank you. Uh, and she wants to love him. She writes a whole uh, letter that is portrayed as one unbroken shot of her face. Great, uh, which is great decision. Incredible. It's awesome. And uh, she basically tells him like, hey, I want to love you, but you're not letting me. I don't know how. And I'm trying to, I'm trying to make things better and you're not letting me, essentially. And uh, that's more or less the entire film. Yeah, this is a bright and tight, like, well, bright. This is a tight 82 minutes. Yeah, and the film, um, I was just going to say, the, is, the film does end uh, with, after going through these things, like, talking to her multiple times, talking to this man played by Max von Sydow, Jonas Pearson, or Pearson, it would be, um, after he kills himself, after the priest, uh, Thomas, goes to tell um, Jonas's wife that he killed himself, he goes to a second service later that day that he's supposed to give. Um, and before it happens, the uh, Algut, uh, Algut Frovic, uh, who's a sexton uh, for the church and uh, who is disabled in some way that's not explicitly uh, explicitly explained, uh, he has been trying to get to talk to Thomas all day. And finally, they sit down and he's like, hey, you told me to read the Gospels whenever I was having trouble sleeping. So I did. And I keep coming up to this problem and it feels like the emphasis on the physical pain of Jesus was is overdone because, as he puts it, uh, I, in my own way, have experienced as much physical pain as Jesus. But the thing that really um, was the most painful and the most harming for Jesus and the reason that the salvation worked was first he was abandoned by his friends, all these people he'd lived with for and like done everything with for years. Um, and they didn't seem to understand anything he'd ever said. They just abandoned him. And then God himself abandons him on the cross. And the Algot, uh, Algot says, um, isn't that like God's silence is like the ultimate punishment, essentially. And you see the, that's the through line of the film. Yes. You see the recognition in Thomas's face. And there's only the only people that are there for the service are Marta, who's his mistress, um, the organist, Frederick uh, Algot, who is the sexton, and Thomas. And that's it. And they're like, we don't really have to do this, the service. Like, no one's really here. Uh, do you still want to go on? And he chooses to still do it anyways. And that decision is, I think, one of the most powerful decisions in film history. 
it is a complete explication of it's like in one single moment it's the entire essay the myth of sisyphus by albert camus it is the fact that he feels in this moment the complete lack of god in his life the complete lack of any love or happiness that he can experience and he feels hopeless but he still decides to attempt anyways i think is i don't think there's a more uplifting message than that in a strange way and i've talked for a while so i'm gonna let you talk for a little bit i will not lie and say when i started watching this that five minutes this is a michelle ass movie. <laughs> it is like comically austere i mean comically but yes it is very austere it concerns matters of faith it's bergman at his most bergman he's pulling out all the stops uh right down to like the the font he uses for the credits of the film mm-hmm um and yeah you basically ran down the plot this is not a movie this is not a movie that is heavy on incident at least externally this is a movie heavy with internal incident and um uh, like it it is it is again we were we've been talking about movies which you wouldn't excise a single from this is one of them um we were we were talking also about no this is exactly what it says on the tin <laughs> it sure is and, if you and, uh, if you didn't like Bergman, this would be the film you point to and say this is like a, almost a parody of what he does. Yeah, this like this is I could definitely see like it is it, it's like to talk about it is almost to ruin its effect because it's so spare in how it moves. It has so few cinematic moves that to talk about it at any length, I feel kind of like de- like deflates the souffle a little bit. But watching it is kind of an experience. Now, I don't know if I am of the opinion that this is the great movie endings of all time, but it is, uh, it is, it is, it's a remarkable ending. It's a great ending. And, um, yeah, give it like just, just, just keeping that light, the, that light on just a little bit, just enough. Which Bergman is excellent at. There's another film of his called Cries and Whispers, uh, which we will sadly not get to because it's on the 250, but that's a film that ends with a scene that just has that barest glimmer of hope. Even though, if anything, that's a darker, more extreme version of what's shown in here. One of my favorite scenes in that film, not to digress too much, but one of my favorite scenes in that film is uh, the character played by Ingrid Thulin. Um, she is very like cold to her sisters. Um, I'm not going to shut up the whole plot, but it does say she has sisters and they have problems. <laughs> Let's say that. Sure. And um, she's very cold got to Bergman them. Bergman problems. Yes. Uh, and there's a moment where... She breaks down and she starts crying. It's the first time you've ever seen this in the movie. The first time you ever see her express serious emotion. Um, and this is also a movie where she mutilates her own genitals and you don't even see emotion then. <laughs> it's it's a fucking, it's a heavy movie. But, um. Oh, Jesus, Ingmar. Yeah. Um, and it's the first time you ever see her show emotion. And then one of her sisters goes to comfort her and she says, I don't want you to be kind to me. It's the most heartbreaking scene. Uh, it's also one of the my favorite scenes in any movie, but it's still. Even with that darkness in it, the movie ends on a note that says, hey, it's still worth trying and it's still worth doing something. Um, even after, for example, in this film, Winter Light, there's a whole sequence where uh, Thomas just lays into Marta with everything he hates about her. Yeah. And it's it's harrowing. It, like You can see her discomfort. You can see his discomfort and the fact that this is them, maybe for the first time ever, being truly open with one another. And he just has nothing but vitriol and meanness and cruelty. And at the end of it, um, while talking, she says, uh, every time I've hated you, I've made an effort to turn it into compassion. And that, that's not the whole movie. I don't know what it is, you know? 
Yeah, that seems to be that seems to be the the through line of um and, and it's to go back to the Camus reference uh and there's an early scene that almost explicitly references that where um with the uh with Jonas um ex- Jonas explicitly asks like why do we have to go on living in this world like what's the point of it which is obviously the parallel to the opening of the myth of Sisyphus by Camus is um there's only one serious problem in philosophy and that is the question of suicide it's the same idea and both works attempt to say hey why why don't we just kill ourselves if the world is meaningless which the it seems to be if there's nothing external we can gain from it which seems to be true there's no god which also seems to be true what's the fucking point and i think both movies come away or both the movie and the essay come away with the most powerful thing you can which is um a sense of determined hopelessness it's like knowing that you can't win but choosing to go on anyways essentially uh which is also the reason that i i adore the film the gray i think this actually has a lot of parallels with the film the gray i think they have a very similar outlook uh whether it's liam neeson fighting wolves or whether it's uh, a very sad priest talking about why he's sad all the time i think in many ways they have the same uh the same outlook and that's an outlook that i that i'm a sucker for fist first into the darkness yes <laughs> oh is it better than Schindler's list though <laughs> Well, I mean, uh, I've given all I can. If you still think Schindler's List is better, then it's going to have to move on. But I... You've made a very, very, very compelling argument. But it is I who wields the hammer. It is. Schindler's List is great. Fucked up in some key ways, but great. Because on a pure, on a pure like, sort of letterbox score level or whatever, I had these at about the same. Because mm-hmm. uh, it's, like, it's like gloss versus austerity. It's like... It's like sort of glossing over Trump. It's like it's like it's like looking at sort of it's one of them is looking at the sort of infliction of trauma and one of them kind of looks at like the residue of it and how you deal with it. Um, they both handle hope in very, very, very different. Um, ah, God, damn. And I think at the end of the day, what I'd say is that the hope in Schindler's List rings false to me uh-huh. uh, where the hope in Winter Light doesn't. And I think it's because of partially that austerity, but also partially just a more a more materialist and like full exegesis of what trauma might feel like. Yeah. Because I'm sorry. I'm like almost, th- this is a great podcasting, by the way, me kind of mumbling to myself. thinking about <laughs> um, I do like a good Cinderella story. I'm going to go with winter light. Hooray. <laughs> we did it folks. It might lose next round. That I'd be fine with that. Although no shit, it's going against Raging Bull. Raging so Bull. next round is going to be a nightmare. Oh yeah, it's one. Of, it's it's like one of your favorite films of all time, and one of our ringers versus a movie that I really like and that you don't. Yeah. So if you choose next round, essentially to move Raging Bull forward, I don't have a choice. It's going a movie I don't like will make it to round three over one of your favorite films of all time. Over my fourth favorite film of all time. If the uh, recent list I made on Letterboxd is anything to go by but thankfully we don't have to cross that bridge for a very 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 long time <laughs> yes true so after that long uh like that was this is our longest episode by far i think we over, way over went with the time limits but uh well i did kind of i did kind of like basically bait you into just selling me on this movie <laughs> that's true which I, I love doing i'd love to do it again next time we get around to it uh right so next time mm-hmm. on, uh, well we should say we should just recap the winner so oh, yeah. it's gonna be how uh raging bowl uh, and Winter Light are moving on. That's right. And uh, I don't think we did this for the last episode, but it doesn't matter because the past doesn't. Um, the next episode that we are going to be doing uh, will be uh, like Stars on Earth, which is another uh, um, fuck. What's from Three Idiots? Amir Khan. Uh, Amir Khan. Yeah. Uh, so this is one that he stars in and directed. I believe. 
which is going up against uh, Tokyo Story and uh, Whiplash versus Prisoners. What a weird matchup. Well, that one's great because it's two incredibly overrated films going up against each other. See, one I like and one I have not seen. I'll let you decide which one is which. Well, I already know, so I'm not going to say anything. Don't. But, oh, God. Um, I f- I f- this, has been, this has been a roller coaster episode, Michelle. It has. We went all the highs and lows of humanity were graced in this in this moment. So where so where does the Steven Spielberg fan fiction fall on that scale? I think the highs of sexual ecstasy of that. Oof. Uh, so <laughs> next episode, uh, we already talked about that. Where, where can people find you on the internet, Derek? Well, if they want to tell you that um, Hall's Women Castle is better than Raging Bull. Well, uh, they could send me uh, an at reply, as the kids call them, on Twitter. My handle is at Derek underscore G. Oh, I'm supposed to say mine. Mine is at Space Jam Fan. Yeah. and the- if, if you want to send me more fan fiction, I'll take it, and I'll read it to Derek all the chances I get. I mean, I don't know if this should become a bit, Michelle. No, I won't. I'll, we'll do other bits. The fan fiction might reoccur, but don't worry. I have plenty of other bits in the back pocket to pull out. And- You've got bits now, in now- the back pocket? Now that I know I can just slide them in there and he, Derek can't stop me. <laughs> it's not so much sliding them in as it is just, you know, just kind of like putting them in there by force. Yeah. But so tell us what you think about potential bits on the show uh, by using our uh, show's Twitter account handle uh, thing, which is at Pod. And if Twitter's not your deal, uh, if Twitter's not your bag, uh, you can always send us an email at middlebrowpodcast at gmail.com. Correct. Ah, man, I I mean, I'm kind of, I don't even know what to think anymore. Uh, let's just uh, say you're welcome to everybody for our best episode yet. <laughs> yes. <laughs> if you've um, made it this far, you are a true fan. <laughs> uh, and until next time, I've been Michelle Arf. And I've been Derek Gatto. Have movies, be jolly. Have movies, be jolly. Good night, everybody. Good night.